0: This is Loree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. I am now joined by my guest, Joyce McMillan, who is a thought leader, advocate, activist, community organizer, and educator. Her mission is to remove systemic barriers in communities of color by bringing awareness to the racial disparities in the systems where people of color are disproportionately affected. She believes the conversation about systemic oppression must happen on all levels consistently before meaningful change can occur. And about that, we are in agreement. Ms. McMillan, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me today.
0: Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You sit and serve as the executive director of an amazing organization, J-Mac for Families. Tell us about this organization. What do you do and how did you get your beginnings? J-Mac, so
1: I got my beginning. I'll start there because I'm a parent who was impacted by what they call child welfare that I refer to as the family policing and family destruction system. From Mm -hmm. there, once you're impacted, it seems as though there's a target on your back and they continue to come into your life. And as they continue to come into my life, I decided to do some research on this agency. And once I did the research and I realized who was disproportionately impacted, and I looked at the removals, the year that I did the research, I think was about 2014. Mm -hmm. And I realized at that time, about 3,000 children had been removed from Harlem and other poor areas of New York City. But when we looked at Battery Park and other more affluent areas, one child, maybe two, and some areas, there were two. Wow. That's when I quit my job working for New York State and began to learn about advocacy in this arena of child protection.
0: Mm, I got to be honest with you. Moving
1: forward from there.
0: I, I have to be honest with you. When you said 2014, my heart sank. Uh, in my non-radial life, I work at a, a racial justice law center. And back in the 90s, uh, our institution had sued the city of New York and, and uh, Child Administration for Children's Services because there was just a wholesale repeated pattern of removing black and brown children from families for what we were calling the crimes of poverty, right? Like if they say, oh, your child didn't have enough to eat. Well, because I, I don't have food. <laughs> I, or, there's no lights on in your house. Yes, because I'm working, but I am poor. I do not have the ability to pay for all the bills because I'm not paid a living wage. And that was back in the 90s. And so to hear you say 2014 and to realize that this is continuing in other ways and other iterations, it it breaks my heart. Can you talk with us a bit about what it is you were able to find? You, you mentioned the fact that Battery Park, which is not a very uh, diverse portion of New York City, uh, had relatively no children being removed in the same ways that black communities like that in Harlem uh, were experiencing. Can you talk to us a bit about why that is based on the research and the work that you've been doing ever since? Well,
1: it's exactly what you said. They frame poverty to be neglect. Hmm. But there's a bigger picture. We can talk about how they get there, and we can also talk about why we are there, why they have laid this plan to do this. And I will share with you, because it's directly related to slavery, if you look at the number of children who age out of foster care into the prison industrial complex, you begin to understand that it's not a pipeline to from foster care to prison, it is a prerequisite. Ooh. If you look at how the children are treated, they're strip-searched, just like prisoners, under the guise of checking for marks and bruises, even though we know... Most children come under their radar for reasons related to poverty. They're both separated from everyone and everything they know and love. They both have set visit days at set visit times. They both eat what they are served. They both change homes and cells regularly. They uh, both use garbage bags or pillowcases to change locations. They are both parole back, utilizing the same language to either their family or to the uh, community. And they both have oversight during that parole period, and they can both be removed and put back into the system for any minute infraction, not crimes. It is no mistake that this system is built to look just like the prison industrial complex. Like I said, it is a prerequisite based on the outcomes. And with that being said, you have to look at the 13th Amendment. The only way to have slaves in this country is through what? Mass incarceration. So, yes, we need to prepare the younger generation to take over as the elders die or get released.
0: You just said a mouthful and we, in the hour before this, we had a conversation about what's happening at Rikers and the criminal justice system and the parallels that you just outlined between the similarities of the criminal justice system and incarceration and the foster care child welfare system at I, I, the hair on the back of my neck just stood up because it, 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 it these are the facts that we cannot look away from. We can explain away a lot, but what we cannot explain away is the systemic nature of the issues that we are experiencing and the similarities between these two very uh, systems that are so prevalent and they play such a key role in our communities. Uh, but to hear you lay it out like that, I, I got to be honest with you, that 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 hits me. That that that. I really resonate with the way in which you laid that out. And I'm so grateful for your wisdom and being able to point for us uh, what those differences and similarities actually are. And and so this speaks a lot to the system as it exists, and yet we all know that there are people within the communities like yourself uh, who are victimized by this in an ongoing way and are doing everything they can to fight back, most of whom do not have the help that they need. How is it that you went from experiencing uh, this intrusion into your family to then organizing around it so that you were able to mount a systemic response?
1: They did not quit while they were ahead. They got me the first time, Mm. and I internalized it, right? And I believed I did something wrong, and I believed all the things they wanted me to believe. And not only that, I believed I was, like, the only one. I had Mm. no idea about how many families were involved with this system, how they keep surveillance over families. And all of the other things that happened when dealing with this system. But because they kept coming back, I said, I need to learn a little more. Because I know damn well I am not who they are saying I am. Mm. And so now I need to look at this. So I began to look at it very closely. And having been incarcerated prior, I've spent time on Rikers Island, the mm. most horrible place you ever want to be, I started seeing the similarities. Wow. And, and, and any system built to protect children should no, in no way mimic a system that was built purposefully to mm. punish adults. Mm. And that is the foundation for all of those naysayers that keep saying, but don't we need something to protect the children? You tell me where the children are protected. Why is Micaiah Bryant dead? Oh, let's talk about that. Mm. um, Why do we go on the news and talk about it when a child dies at home, but we're not talking about the children that's dying within the system's quote-unquote care, and I just gave you the air marks.
0: Mm.
1: Because more children die in foster care than they do at home, but we don't talk about that because no one's spoiling those um, documents. No one's asking about those documents. And no one seems to care about those documents because we're stuck on protecting children, utilizing the language to condition people who have not been impacted to believe that's what they actually do. You mentioned the outcomes they have. They still have people, surveillance and families to put them in a system that we all know are failing.
0: You mentioned Micaiah Bryant, and that is a name that most of us heard for the first time uh, in the immediate aftermath of the trial for Derek Chauvin, the officer, one of the four officers accused of murdering George Floyd. And this was a young woman who was uh, in a foster care setting. Can you give us a bit, uh, just remind the audience as to who she was and what happened to her and how it is we came to know her story? Makaya Bryant is a young lady who was placed in foster care along with her four, three siblings.
1: And Makaya Bryant and her sister were placed at the same home where there had been several calls from the two young ladies stating that they did not feel safe there. They had called the police for protection several times. Mm. Um, the family had complained, or the mom, I'm not going to say the family, I'm going to be specific and say the mom, Paula Bryant, had complained about the placement. Um, the children remained in that home because when children make a complaint about their parent, right, regardless wow. of how frivolous that complaint is, the parent is criminalized and demonized, and they do their best to remove the children out of that home. But when they and the and the child is believed, of course, but when they make a complaint about the foster placement, I refuse to call it a home. Um, when they make a complaint about the foster placement, then they say the children are liars. So Mm. the Bryant remained in this home, and on this day, I guess she had had enough, and she picked up a knife to defend herself, and the police had already been called by the time she picked up the knife, so once the police arrived, they saw a black body with a knife in the hand and Mm. shot without asking any questions, without asking her to drop the weapon, without identifying themselves as police officers. I'm sure we've all seen the video, and I know I didn't hear any of that. Um, the coroner right. has ruled the death of homicide, but no one has been charged, and no one's saying her name because she had a knife in her hand. But we need to lift this family up. Why? Mm. because this child was in to, quote-unquote, care, air quotes again, and they did not care for her. They did not care for her um, mental safety, emotional safety, nor physical safety. And I'm working with her parent right now, Paula Bryant, mm. and I want to lift up that this morning they do everything to interrupt the relationship with the parent and the children. So her 11-year-old son this morning, yesterday was transferred to a location two hours away from mom, making wow. it more difficult to see him, trying to alienate her from um, having a relationship with him as they continue to pump him with medications because he's acting out because he misses his mom.
0: My God. And on top of dealing with the trauma of having lost his sister uh, in such a tragic and public way. And and so our hearts go out to her. Please do let her know that we are sending her love. We know that that cannot be difficult. And frankly, uh, so many of us have experienced uh, disruptions within our family, be it within our relationships with our own children, be it within the the broader context of our families. And there is, I got to be honest with you, ma'am, there is so much shame you <laughs> Sometimes around talking about these issues, around seeking help and, and being able to do so publicly. And I think it is so amazing and empowering that you were able to navigate this system and then thought, okay, this happened to me. This has happened to other people. What do we now do to organize around it? We have to make sure that we are creating the solutions to the problems that we're seeking and your organization, JMAC for families, which people can find more about uh, at jmacforfamilies.com. That's J-M-Like-Mary-A-C, jmacforfamilies.com. You all have a concept called the Parent Legislative Action Network. Uh, PLAN is the acronym. What is this program and how does it work?
1: So Parent Legislative Action Network is something that I came up to bring in a coalition of people to work on legislative changes. And Mm. we had a major change. There's something called the State Central Registry. And the state central registry is like a sex offender list. When people go on this list, the New York Times wrote a report, I believe it was in 2018 or 19 that stated over 50,000 people go on the state central registry in New York every year. Three quarters of those people never have a day in court and don't know that they're on the registry until a background check is done for them to gain employment. Mm. And this When we talk about the parallels again, being on the state central registry has much of the same impact as having a felony conviction. Wow. Except there's no due process. You have no court to get in or get on this list. And you stay on this list until your youngest child turns the age of 28 years old. What? you have a new child during that period, and Child Protection Services, as they call themselves, find out that you had a new child, your time on the list starts over to the, that child turns the what? Age. So for me, I'm on the list. My first case was in 1999, and I went on the list. That child is now 22 years old, so I would have a remainder of another few years, except with this legislation that we just got passed that goes into effect January of 22, you will stay on the list for eight flat years from the date that you are indicated on a case, and they use the word indicated because most people never go to court. It's just a case manager utilizing her implicit biases to say, I believe this person should go on a list. And they use the word indicated because it's a way to circumvent the judicial system where they cannot utilize the word guilty.
0: Who you just said? I, I gotta be honest with you. When you started to say you were on the list for twenty, I just knew. Or until your child turns twenty, and and then I was waiting. I just knew you was gonna say twenty one, but you said twenty eight. That makes, I, I, it, it boggles my mind that we have these systems in place, and it shouldn't. I mean, I've done enough of this work that I should stop being surprised, but it still surprises me to find the very insidious ways that some of these harms are able to be perpetuated. And, you know, there are some situations where family uh, realities are such that the child perhaps should have an alternative. We understand that not all families are doing what is necessary to sustain uh, their children, and perhaps that is because of circumstance, perhaps that is because of, of failings that they themselves experience as children but the reality is It cannot be that 90 plus percent of the problem of parenting and child care uh, uh, issues are in black and brown communities. What we definitely know is that that it cannot be that white parents are not experiencing this, that white families are not experiencing uh, this subject of what uh, black families and brown families are being accused of. And yet we do not see the same sort of, of intervention in white communities, whereas black children will get sent. Uh, will be incarcerated at juvenile hall, white children will often get a therapist. Where black children are taken out of homes, white children are given access uh, to extensive uh, support services, as are their families, if they are involved and, and investigated at all. And so, you know, I know there are folks out there and next week we actually have, uh, we're going to have a guest on Taki Morgan and he is someone who himself went through the foster care system and he, like yourself, has had to create uh, an organization for the children who have navigated that space because there is such a lack of support and actual investment in the needs of the people that we're talking about. If there is a problem with parenting, let's provide parents the access to the skills and the resources that they need so that the problem can be resolved. If there is a problem with child discipline, and Let us invest in the services that that child needs so that they are empowered to make better choices and to engage in a more healthy and positive way. But we only see that happening in white communities. We don't see that type of investment happening in black and brown communities, which is why uh, the work that you are doing uh, with JMAC for Families is so very important. How can people get involved in the work that you're doing and, and learn more about how to follow this work and perhaps learn how to advocate on behalf of themselves and their own families?
1: So I'm glad you mentioned that. They can get involved by emailing me at advocateandorganize, and spelled out A-N-D, at gmail.com. I just started a HEAL program, which is a 12-week program, 12 weeks of a healing support group run by clinical MSW students and graduates. From mm. Columbia University, mm. and nine weeks of education, empowerment, advocacy, and legislative leadership. Wow. We're hoping that as they go through this program, then they would filter directly into the Plan Coalition, which is comprised of Bronx Defenders, Brooklyn Defenders, Neighborhood Defender Services of Harlem, NYU Family Law Clinic, professors, therapists, and of course, first and foremost, the parents who lead and tell. These professionals who are advocates, Um, you may be the professionals, but we are the experts, and here are the things Mm. we want to change. Here is how it impacted our life. Help us to write legislation. Teach us how to write legislation. Empowering communities to be able to take the reins and make the changes that they see are necessary.
0: Mm. This, uh, sometimes we focus a lot on the the problems that we are experiencing in our society on this show and it always makes me so happy to be able to point to solutions in action. I want to ask you now about the internal dialogue that has to happen when it comes to healing a family unit once uh, an interruption or a disruption in the family structure has been experienced, whether it was a wrongful disruption or perhaps one that was founded based on actual need. Talk to us a bit about... The challenges of having conversations once your child has been removed and they're brought back into your home, should you be so fortunate. What is the process of reconnecting with that child and, and beginning the process of healing and repairing that relationship?
1: It's a very difficult process because children look to their parents for protection,
0: mm.
1: children look at their parents as a superhero. I remember being a child, and if another kid bothered you, some kids would say, I'm going to get my big sister. You say, yeah, I'm going to get my big brother, and it goes back and forth. And you go, <laughs> well, now I got the trump card. I'm going to bring my mama, you know? <laughs> and so that's disrupted because now children no longer believe that you can protect them. Wow. Because they've called out to you. They said, I'm being molested. I'm being beaten. I'm being starved. I'm being mistreated. I'm being locked out. I'm being told to sleep in the basement. These things are really happening in these homes. And the parents have no power to protect the child, as in back to the Micaiah Bryant case, right? She's just an example of thousands, hundreds of thousands, right? Mm. There's 500,000 kids in foster care across the 50 states. So she's just one example of how the power is taken from the parent. And when the child is returned, it's kind of like, screw you, Because you can't protect me. I've been put in a position for X amount of time to protect myself, and I'm going to continue to do that. So these behaviors that they pick up um, to defend themselves while in this situation, being separated from their parents, are behaviors that they come home exhibiting. And it's very disruptive to the home. And parents feel... That there's nothing they can do to combat it because the people who they would turn to for support, like a therapist or a school teacher or a doctor, are mandated reporters. And anything they say to that person would generate another call because the way mandated reporters are trained, they're trained to surveil black families, to be suspicious of black families, and to report black families. Mm. And so there's no one to turn to. So you're isolated with your problems, and usually the problems just continue to grow until the family comes back under the radar of CPS. And then they go, see, I knew they were bad. We gave the kids back, and now this is happening. Mm. But the system also creates recidivism through these actions, through this mandated reporter um, thing that happens that prevents families from reaching out for help. And recidivism is also created in the way when we talk about being on the state central registry. So my daughters today are 30 and 22 years old. And if one of my children had a child and needed me to be a resource as a grandma, the system currently would say no to me. They wouldn't consider wow. who I am today, what I'm doing today, or any of that stuff. Just the fact that I'm on that state central registry, I would not be allowed to be a resource. So when the recidivism happens, they would say, see, generationally, they're bad. So this is mm. what we call systemic problems. They're systemic because they set up to create the outcomes that we have, and they're invisible to the naked eye. Because people would just say, Joyce is still whatever, whatever word they want to use. And so this is why her grandkids are now in the system, too. They wouldn't look at the fact that there was a mechanism put in place called the state central registry, because most people don't even know that exists. When we look at black and brown communities and we see people not working, we say they're lazy. But how many of them have a felony and can't work? How many are on the state central registry and can't work? So there's a very small percentage of us mm. that even have the opportunity to be gainfully employed or to receive um, loans for certain um, positions in life, like a therapist. If you're right. on a state central registry, you're not going to get a school loan for that if they understand that you're on a registry because they know you can't be a therapist. And if you do Oof. end up getting a loan, you're not going to get a job. So how are you going to pay
0: that loan back? Right, right you are really speaking to and and you keep using that phrase systemic and this is not a new system it literally you know your analogy of of reminding us about the parallels between the child uh quote welfare system and uh, uh the criminal justice system and the roots that both of those have in the 13th amendment which is itself rooted in the legacy of enslavement and the ultimate control and domination of black bodies it is not lost on me or this audience and so this is why uh uh, we have to have these uncomfortable conversations on this show because there has to be a, a stronger role that the community can play in supporting this effort. What does that look like? If perhaps I am not a part of the group of folks who have experienced this, perhaps uh, I, had, my family has not uh, been violated in this way or we have not had the, the circumstances such that a child had to be removed, but I'm hearing this story and my heart is breaking or I'm hearing this story and I recognize that I'm seeing similarities with other types of systemic disruptions and issues within our community what can i do to help
1: keep having shows like this bringing (laughs) awareness asking people to support the work that i do because unfortunately you have foundations who will give cps or agencies, foster care agencies that work with CPS and are contracted by CPS a half a million dollars or a million dollars and they'll give me two thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. How can my five or ten thousand dollars compare to the half a million you just gave to them? So communities we have to support Um, each other and support the work that's being done organically by the people who've been impacted, those who understand and know best what's happening, to help us find a way out. We have to um, push the federal government to stop incentivizing the removals of our children. We have to stop the surveillance of our communities. So I'll go back to something you said earlier about um, finding the resources Part of what they're doing now is they're creating a preventive service thing where everyone goes into preventive services, but preventive services doesn't provide services. You understand? Mm. So they're not preventing anything because we know that people need resources to prevent anything. So if it was lack of food, are you bringing food to the home? No, you're just surveillance the home. Surveillance wow. is not support and poverty is not neglect. That's and right. so what we have to do is stop selling the work that CPS is doing as preventive work or as um, anything that's helpful to the community. We need community organizations to provide the resources. One of my um, goals is to provide pampers to families and communities, because while there's subsidies for milk subsidies for housing there's subsidies for a lot of different things there's no subsidies for pampers and pampers are one of the most expensive items that you could buy or be responsible to buy to care for your child and you have to pay those prices for three to four years Mm. and pampers could be fifty dollars a box and this year i gave out um about ten thousand boxes of pampers throughout covid wow So i won't say this year but since covid has started
0: Ms. McMillan, you are a real gem. You are someone who has experienced... Uh, this, this interruption within your own family, you are someone who speaks, uh, with the knowledge of, of intimacy with this issue. And that's why, you know, I, I can't remember who it was that said it, but somebody really wise and, and intelligent from our community <laughs> once said that the people who are closest to the problem should be the very people that we look to, to create the solutions. And I want to say thank you to you, uh, for being close enough to the problem that you were recognizing a need to step back and study it so that you could be a part of creating the solution jmacforfamilies.com is the website. You can also follow them at jmacforfamilies on on Twitter. Uh, An amazing organization. Your board is outstanding. I've been all over your website. You have an amazing board of people uh, who are there to support you and to surround you. And that, to me, really helps to speak to the the impact that you and your organization are making. It has been a real pleasure having you here. Uh, Please know that we would love to have you come back to keep us updated on the campaigns that you're in engaged in uh, so that we can make sure that we are amplifying that work uh, to the best of our ability. It's been a real pleasure having you here.
1: Thank you so much, Larry, and I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to be here with you today and I would love to come back.